0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, when I was in high school, I went on a uh, student ambassador trip. So it was kind of this cultural exchange program, uh, this organization that was founded by President Eisenhower. Very impressive, right? Student ambassador, traveled Western Europe as a student ambassador. Uh, the idea was for high school students to kind of be involved in this like, kind of international diplomacy. And again, that sounds very impressive, and let me destroy that perception immediately. Um, I spent uh, pretty much uh, my entire summer uh, just gorging myself on European food. That was the extent of my ambassadorship. So again, Eisenhower founded the organization like 60 years ago, or 60 years before I went, uh, and there was less international diplomacy when I went, and much more European food involved. Uh, For example, in Belgium, I discovered what a real Belgian waffle tastes like. And wow, it was delightful. Uh, in the Netherlands, I, uh, I discovered, well, they have this like mayonnaise thing that they uh, put on French fries. And I was, I was skeptical at first, because I know they do a lot of drugs in that country. Uh, and and uh, I tried it, and it was wonderful. It was great. So the Dutch know what they're doing, apparently. Uh, basically, uh, in every country I visited, I ate. And I don't think this is much of an exaggeration. I probably ate close to 20 scoops of gelato a day. Uh, mango gelato, my favorite thing in the world. If there's anything that's mango-flavored, that's what I like. Mango gelato, Europe, it's everywhere. And man, I, this is what you get when you send a 15-year-old uh, on a, you know, an international diplomacy uh, kind of trip. I had the title uh, ambassador. I was not in my homeland. I had you know a fancy polo, name tag, and everything but I was really just a food tourist eating my way through Western Europe. And I want to compare myself as a, a student ambassador with a man named Kostas Makris. Kostas Makris, I only happen to know about him because I know a lot of his kids. Uh, and he died the same year that I went on that trip. Kostas Makris was born and raised in Athens, Greece. Eventually went and served as a missionary in Papua New Guinea. In Irian Jaya, specifically, he later felt a burden to leave Papua New Guinea to go back to his native Greece because he realized just how lost his homeland really was. Something like over 90% of Greeks say they're Christians and something like less than half a percent actually believe uh, what we would say are evangelical convictions about the Bible and Christ and the gospel. So it's a very, very lost nation. And that was where he grew up. So that's where Costas MacRees went. And back in Greece, he founded a missions organization that got Bibles into the hands of the Greek people. He served the homeless in Athens, started a ministry to care for them. He started a sports camp uh, on a little kind of is- Greek island. This is actually how I know his family. I-, I got to serve at that sports camp when I was in college. Uh, and the idea was- there was to bring the gospel to Greek teenagers who were growing up in this very lost, very secular society. And he, uh, through that missions organization, planted Christ-centered churches around Greece that still today are, by God's grace, thriving. I remember one time when I was in Greece on a different trip uh, on a study abroad, I asked our tour guide, who was just this random woman, uh, just, have you ever heard of Kostas McCrease? It was the kind of thing you wouldn't expect one random person in an entire country to know another random person in this entire country. And she said, yes, of course. Everyone in Greece knows that name. In the year he died, 2006, Costas McCrease was in his homeland serving the cause of the gospel, and I was in Europe eating gelato. And my question this morning, to orient us towards this passage of Scripture we are going to unpack this morning, my question is, which one of us was really an ambassador? Which one of us actually represented his homeland? Well, today in Matthew chapter 10, we're going to see Jesus commission his disciples as his ambassadors. He's going to send them out. We're going to see what it means that they're his ambassadors. We're going to see what he commands them to do in that role, and it's going to inform our role as his ambassadors today. So uh, for the past few weeks, if you've been with us, we've kind of been in this, this new section of Matthew's gospel Uh, where Jesus is beginning to include his disciples in his ministry. So previously it was kind of the Jesus show, uh, and now here, especially in chapter 10, he's talking to his disciples, he's teaching them, and he will be sending them out. So uh, two weeks ago, Matthew chapter 9, he commanded them to pray to God to raise up laborers for the harvest. He looks and he sees everyone so lost and without God, and he says, pray for God to raise up more laborers. The, The fields are white for the harvest. And then last week, Jesus kind of answered his own prayer request. He he called 12 disciples to himself. Matthew Matthew 10, verse 1, he called 12 disciples. And then verse 2, he named them 12 apostles. So he called 12 disciples and he named them 12 apostles. Those are words we don't really use, or we don't really know what they mean usually. We we use them a lot. We use them especially in kind of Christian uh, culture, Christian society. We'd say, uh, the apostles, we know who that means. A disciple, we know what that is. Uh, well, just to, uh, it's helpful to, to just take a moment and define what we're talking about here. So a disciple, uh, it's, it's related to the term for a student or a, a learner. So it's, the verb to learn is related to the word for disciple. So that's what a disciple is, someone who, who learns, who has a, a teacher they're following, who they're learning from. Uh, the word apostle is different. It is not just a synonym. Often we use them like they're synonyms in the New Testament. They're not synonyms. Although they often refer to the same group of 12 people, uh, the word apostle uh, was related to the verb for to send out. So, an apostle is one who is sent out. So, Matthew 10, verse 2 is actually the first time that word appears in this book because Jesus is sending them out. He's taking these, these 12 learners and he's sending them as 12 apostles. Now, it is important to, to say, you know, Eventually, these 12 will become the kind of capital A apostles who, who lay the foundation for Christ's church, who become the, the authoritative witnesses to the, the resurrection of Christ and his ministry and all those things. Uh, but here, Jesus is just sending them out. It's kind of the original meaning of the word apostle, one who is sent. But it's, it's more than just that. They're actually not just sent out. They are sent out on a specific purpose, and that purpose is to represent Jesus in the world. They were, in a word, ambassadors. They were sent out on a mission. They were uh, his representatives. They were not at home. And here, Jesus kind of gives them their marching orders. He gives them their instructions as the ambassadors of Christ. And as I've already uh, alluded to from that, we too are going to see how it informs our duties as Christ's ambassadors today. 2 Corinthians 5, if you were here for theological equipping class, Jared uh, walked us through this a little bit. We are called ambassadors for Christ. Christians are all ambassadors for Christ. As ambassadors, we are not at home. 1 Peter says we are exiles in this world. As ambassadors, we represent the one who sent us. 2 Corinthians 2 says we are the aroma of Christ. We speak on behalf. We are, in a way, the presence of Jesus to this world. We stand in for our king. And as his ambassadors, we have a duty to perform. We'll see that today. But there's one more thing we need to do before we really dive into our passage. Uh, in, In fancy theological speech, this is going to be called hermeneutics. So hermeneutics is a fancy word. You know, people with PhDs like to invent words to make themselves seem impressive Uh, It's kind of one of those words. Uh, It's it's about how to interpret the Bible rightly. That's all hermeneutics is. It's understanding how to understand the meaning of the Bible uh, and apply it to our lives today. Because if you've been paying attention, I've already kind of made a a theological leap. So I I said the apostles are sent out as the 12 ambassadors for Christ. Hey, guess what? We're also ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. So this passage helps us know how to do that. But there's a problem there, right? We're not the 12 apostles. We are not in first century Israel laying the foundation for Christ's church for the rest of the church age. Uh, we are, they, they had a specific unique role that we don't have. I mean, Jesus even says, don't go to the Samaritans. And we're like, cool, wasn't planning on it. That's great. No, I don't know any. So to put it bluntly, there are 15 commands in this passage. Do we obey each and every one of them, word for word, letter for letter, kind of wholesale? Do we just say, OK, that's what he said. That's what we need to do. Verse 9, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Cool. Real Christians use cryptocurrency. Nothing goes in your belt, right? Just goes in your computer. Or, you know, I don't know how cryptocurrency works, which apparently is a good thing now. Anyway, um, yeah, verse 10, take no bag for your journey. If you own a suitcase, church, go home and burn it," Jesus said. "No bags." Okay, it's obvious to us, right? It's obvious that's not the case. Like, like, why? But, but the question is why? Like, how? It's hard to articulate what the difference is between there and here. Uh, but the short answer is that we stand in a different place in the history of God's redemptive work than these 12 apostles did. We have a different role, although there are similarities we're going to talk about. But we stand in a different place in the history of God's redemptive work. So two two extremes we need to avoid. Two extremes. Anytime you're reading your Bible or you're in a Bible study or something like that, I'd say these are two extremes that you really need to have in mind so that you're not misinterpreting what's going on. The first we'll call the one-to-one extreme. The one-to-one extreme is where we just kind of already, already said, apply the commands wholesale, right? So it's like the, the Nike extreme, like just do it, right? Just, just what it says, do it. For the most part, in the New Testament, you're kind of safe with that. Um, but in passages like this, you need to realize, okay, there's a specific context here. We can't just ignore the differences, burn your suitcase, put all your money in Bitcoin. Uh, there, there's a difference here. So one-to-one, that's one extreme. The other, I'll call one-to-none, Uh, Which is where we would say, oh, man, this is irrelevant, right? It's, you know, God needed to fill a few more pages in the Bible. uh, Or, you know, Matthew's just recording a little bit of history here, but this isn't for us. Well, 2 2 Timothy 3 says all, the word there in Greek is also all, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. All. So Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15, would be included in that all. So we need to avoid those two extremes and basically remember some simple principles of Bible study, and and that's that the Bible was written for us, but not to us. It's written for us, but it's not written to us. There's an original context. We're reading someone else's mail. So, you know, every football player loves the verse, you know, I can, you know, tackle all quarterbacks through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, that's, that's not what it's about. It's not about football. I hate to break it to you. Sorry if you have it tattooed already. <laughs> the Bible was written for us, but not to us. So our obedience to any command must be run through the lens of our place in redemptive history. We are not the 12 apostles. We do not share their context. We live after the cross and before the return of Christ. So we need to recognize what was specific to them as his ambassadors, his original ambassadors, Draw out the principles we see and consider how they apply to our role as his ambassadors today. Okay, all that by way of preamble. Uh, Here is your outline. Jesus gives us four principles that will guide our ambassadorship. Four principles. Let's dive into the text, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Principle one, Jesus' ambassadors represent him by going where he commands. His ambassadors represent him by going where he commands. Already, right away in verse five and six, you you probably recognize there's a difference to their context and our context, right? Jesus gives a command that strikes us as weird, Right? We're used to Jesus saying, go, and here Jesus is saying, don't go. Don't go to those people. Don't go to those people. I mean, what kind of evangelism plan is this? Right? Like if, if I were to say to you guys, okay, Parkway Church, we're going to do some neighborhood evangelism. alright We're going to canvas the neighborhoods, but only knock on the doors of native Texans. All right? Ignore all the Californians on your street. Right? Go only to the lost sheep of the house of Texas or whatever. I mean, you'd be like... I don't understand. Like, aren't Californians more lost? Like, uh, doesn't God already elect everyone born in Texas? Isn't that how it works? Why would we, you know, it's weird. What's going on here? Well, Jesus is fulfilling a promise. He's fulfilling a promise. He does not, uh, this is important to know in, in general, but Jesus here specifically does not show up with some brand new, let me invent a new religion kind of idea. He came... As the Jewish Messiah. He came to fulfill God's promises to the Jewish people, to the Israelites of the Old Testament. If you're if you're doing a, a one-year Bible plan, you know, reading through the Bible in one year, you're probably, I'm not sure, like maybe in Deuteronomy right now, unless Leviticus really beats you up, which it does. Um, but you've, you've already come across, however far you are, you've certainly already come across tons of promises and expectations about one who is to come. So the seed of Eve, who will crush the serpent. The prophet like Moses, who will speak the word of God. The shepherd who will bring God's lost sheep home. There's all these expectations, these promises to the Israelites that ha- as of yet, by the time of the New Testament starting, have gone un fulfilled. They were the hopes of the Jewish people. They, the Jews were the original stewards, the original inheritors of God's promises. So as, as Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians, is, is the one in whom all God's promises are, yes, it makes sense for his work to start with them. But that's not the whole story. It starts there, but this command has kind of a trajectory across the Old Testament and even in the ministry of Jesus. So first, in the Old Testament, uh, the prophets foretell a day when the Messiah will come for the Jewish people, yes, but also for all peoples. Look at Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So it's clear here, the gospel starts with the Jews, but it does not end there. The prophets kind of see this trajectory. All nations will come to the God of Israel and be joined together as God's people. And again, as I've already said, that's not only promised in the Old Testament, that's the pattern of Jesus' whole ministry. So here he does the don't go command, only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But in a few chapters, Matthew 15, he meets a Canaanite woman who he initially uh, sends away because she's not a Jew. But by the end of the passage, he's praising her for her faith. Or Matthew 22, he tells this parable of a king's wedding feast where he says, invite all the the people who are supposed to be here. And none of them say no. And the implication is that's like the Jews in Jesus' day. They're rejecting the Messiah. And so the king says, okay, go out to the streets, go, any, go to the next town, bring anyone who's willing to come. At the crucifixion, Matthew 27, the first one to look and confess, truly this is the Son of God, is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And of course, you know Matthew 28, where Jesus says at the very end of this book, go make disciples of all nations. The floodgates are opened. The, the promises are expanding across this book. So Jesus' ambassadors represent him by going where he commands. And for us, we stand after Matthew 28. That means we go everywhere. That means there is nowhere we could possibly go that Jesus has not commanded us to represent him as his ambassador. In the words of uh, theologian Abraham Kuyper, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence Over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There's nowhere you could go that God does not call you to represent him. Brothers and sisters, do you do that? Do you represent Jesus as his ambassador everywhere? In your home? in your office, in your gym, at your dinner table, at your haircut appointments, at your family reunions, and your random interactions with strangers, those are the fields of your ambassadorship. Do you represent your king there? Or is Jesus only for Sundays and specifically in this room? When I was on that student ambassador trip, you know, eating my way through Western Europe, there were a handful of times I, in a more formal way, represented our nation. So I, I met a member of British Parliament. And you, know, you meet a you know, foreign dignitary, and you're, you know, it's like, we each represent our nation. You know? uh, I did ask him, you know, wasn't it awesome when we beat you in the Revolutionary War? Um, so I guess I represented, yeah, it was, that's probably a good, accurate representation of what any American would say to a member of British Parliament. Um, but it was, it was rare. It was rare for me to actually represent my nation. Is it rare for you to represent Jesus? Do you compartmentalize your witness? This is not the time. This isn't the place. This is is not where I'm really supposed to be an ambassador for Christ. If he really is sovereign, and he is, And in his sovereignty, if he has placed you in the various spheres of your life as his ambassadors, which he has, we must go with the mindset, this is where I represent my king. I'm his ambassador here. One more note on this point. Jesus' ambassadors must go where he commands. The simple truth is that we, I don't mean specifically Parkway, I mean the capital C Church Uh, Have not fully obeyed the Great Commission, Matthew 28, until the gospel has been brought to all nations, all the peoples of the earth, which is why it seems to me that that missions should focus on the unreached, those nations where we have not yet made disciples. We must go where Jesus commands. But that's not all we do, It's not just our, our presence, like being there does something that the world needs. We have something to do, a task. And Jesus gives his apostles their task in verses 7 in the first half of verse 8. So look there in your Bibles. It says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. Principle 2. Jesus' ambassadors represent him by declaring and displaying his kingdom. We represent him by declaring and displaying his kingdom. So those, those are the kind of the two elements to the original apostles' ministry, a, a preaching element and a healing element. If that sounds familiar, uh, that's exactly what Jesus has been doing throughout the entire book of Matthew so far. Just look a few verses earlier in, in chapter 9, verse 35, where Matthew summarizing Jesus' ministry, he says, he went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. Those, those two elements that uh, Jesus has been doing in his ministry, he calls the apostles to do in theirs as well. Uh, but I want to point out a couple things here. As we, as we look closely at Jesus' commands, uh, one thing we need to note is that the priority, the first most important command is preaching. That is the apostle's main task. That is their primary objective. You can see that a little bit in the English, but I think it's it's particularly clear in the Greek text. So the the primary command is proclaim. Uh, As I've already said, it's the first thing he says to do. It has this kind of longer explanation. But but then it's it's also, sorry, we're going to do a little bit of grammar here. It's the only verb that precedes its object in Greek. Some of you were like, wow, I did not expect to get a grammar lesson today. Did not want that at church, but I'm sorry, you're getting it. So... Verse 7, the word order is what you'd expect. In Greek, just proclaim the kingdom, right? Verse 8, this is what the commands read like. The sick heal, the dead raise, lepers cleanse, demons cast out. See, it's, it's reversed. The word order is different. Uh, the sentence structure is showing us this is a secondary aspect to their ministry. The idea is that this isn't what they're Going out to do so much is something they're called to do as the occasion arises. So you meet a sick person, apostle, heal them. There's a a dead person, raise them. You meet a leper, cleanse them. As they have the opportunity, they are called to do these things. But the main focus, the main job is the message they preach. But that's not to say that those other things don't matter. Uh, the, the reality is here the role of those other things, the healing of the sick and raising the dead, is to show, to demonstrate the message that they are called to preach. So they're preaching the kingdom of heaven is near. And the works they do are designed as this visible manifestation of what that kingdom looks like. So in that kingdom, sickness is undone. So when they see a sick person healed, they say, that's the kingdom, that's what it looks like. The dead are raised, evil is banished, impurity is cleansed. That is the kingdom we are saying is near. So brothers and sisters, you probably don't realize this, but when you pray for someone you love to be healed from some sickness or disease, what you are praying is that the eternal kingdom of Christ would break into their lives. That, like in a flash, eternity would show up. Eternity where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, there is no disease, would show up and heal them. That They would get a little taste of what's to come. So uh, if, it's like if I were to tell you uh, my favorite fast food place is Raising Cain's Chicken Fingers, and it is, it's amazing. And let's pretend you had lived a very horrible life and never even heard of Raising Cain's Chicken Fingers. But I told you, there's one coming to McKinney. They're about to build a Cane's, like, across the street. That would be amazing. I would have, I'd lose all my money. Um, but there, there's one coming, and I describe to you, like, what the, this nectar of the gods called Cane sauce is. And I, I tell you how perfectly buttered the Texas toast is and how their lemonade is just, it's magical. There's something different about it, right? Uh, and I could, I could tell you, tell you, tell you, but then I pull out a box combo and I say, here's a taste. This is what's coming. That is what these miracles are. They are a taste of the kingdom to come. And as Jesus' ambassadors today, we too represent him by declaring and displaying his kingdom. And this is going to sound maybe crazy. I'll explain. We too demonstrate, we display. The coming, the coming kingdom through miraculous, visible manifestations of that kingdom. I am not, when I say that, I am not talking about what they do uh, at Bethel Church in Redding, California, having a, a specific healing ministry or walking around graveyards trying to get the dead to rise. Uh, that is not what we are called to as a church. Nowhere, it's great to pray for healing. That's a great thing. Nothing wrong with that. Nowhere is that centralized as the ministry of the church in the New Testament. Instead, the miraculous, visible manifestation of Christ's kingdom here and now is the church. It is the people of God gathering to worship him. The church is where God has ordained For the miraculous majesties of his eternal kingdom to be put on display. Hebrews 12, verse 22. It's a description of Christ's church on earth, the the taste of eternity that we get when we gather as his church. Hebrews 12. You have come, not you will come, you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's the church right now. When we sing songs and Tim leads us, we are not... Just singing in this room, we are spiritually gathered with the eternal saints of God in heaven, singing the praises of our exalted King. The church, the worship assembly of God, is an embassy of heaven a little outpost on the soil of this world representing the kingdom which is to come. So it is an embassy of eternity where you hear the the language and the accent of heaven. Word seasoned with love and encouragement and joy, where you hear the praises of God going up among the saints. It's an embassy where you you glimpse the culture, the the unity of heaven. People who, who should be enemies at war, but have laid down their arms and love the same king. It's a miracle that displays the kingdom. We're an embassy. We are an embassy of heaven where you taste the food of heaven. Every Sunday where we we take the body and blood of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in the Lord's Supper. A, A meal we will feast on for eternity and we get a little taste of every time we gather. This here, Parkway Church, in our worship, in our gatherings, in our life together, is where you are meant to get a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. And if that does not get you pumped up for Sunday morning, if that doesn't break you of a casual, non committal church attendance, I don't know what will. But like the apostles, all that follows from the message we proclaim. That's what's central. That's that's the priority in our life together. That's what we're demonstrating is that the kingdom is near. That's the message we preach, that there is a a king who will one day hold all people to account. There will be a day of judgment, a day where evil will be destroyed, But part of the problem is that there's evil in each of our own hearts as we're rebels against the holy God of the universe. And our sins will be exposed. and We will be grasping at straws with nothing to say. But we also proclaim that that king, who is also the judge, became sin for us and went to the cross to bear the punishment for our sins. So we do have something to say. If we are in Christ, we can stand before the throne of God and say, I have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus. There's nothing I can claim in myself, but Christ has paid, he has, he has made a way for me to enter into the holy place. So where we preach the message that if you trust in that king, If you renounce your allegiances to sin and to self, you will find citizenship in his kingdom, the fullest joy you could ever know. So friends, believe this message in church. Live this message. May we be a faithful embassy of Christ's kingdom. May we plant his flag here in McKinney and represent him as his embassy. Jesus continues this theme of of manifesting the kingdom to his apostles by telling them how to live in this world. So look at the second half of verse 8. He says, you received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you Depart. So we go where he commands, we preach and we portray his kingdom. Third principle Jesus' ambassadors represent him by holding loosely to this world. We hold loosely to this world. That's what he's commanding the apostles to hear. To be ambassadors, they can't get too comfortable. Jesus is sending them out. And to keep them from getting comfortable where they're going, he's making them depend on God for literally everything. So it's, it's pretty radical. So financially, right, he says, acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. Right? The idea is if you're, if you're putting it in your belt, you've got some money for tomorrow. Right? You're saving it up. You can start stockpiling even. Uh-oh. They can't do that. The, the money, it, he even says the money, it's interesting, in, in these kind of diminishing denominations. So gold, can we have silver? No silver. Okay, how about copper? No copper, right? It's like, like no dollars, no quarters, not even pennies. You can't put anything in your bag. Jesus does not want them prepared for their journey. He says, don't take a bag. Don't take two tunics. Don't take a, a sandals or a staff. It's this like ultimate college guy road trip where you're not allowed to plan or prepare anything. Instead, they must provide. they must trust on God to provide through the strangers they meet. That's verse 11. When they they show up in a town, they need to find someone who's worthy, and they stay with them. It's this kind of weird phrasing. It's hard to understand at first. Um, What does it mean to make someone worthy? Not make them worthy, but what does it mean that someone is worthy? Uh, At the end of verse 10, though, we get this line. It says, the laborer deserves his food. Uh, And in Greek, that word for deserves is the same as the word worthy in the next verse. Verse. So it seems to be what he's saying is that uh, you know, worthy isn't some kind of moral or social status thing. It's, it's just someone who's willing to provide food, who, who would agree the laborer deserves their food. They're worthy of it. So this is someone, a home that's willing to provide room and board for Jesus' apostles. And Jesus gives these commands because, like the works that his apostles are called to do as they go out into the world, their lifestyle. Will display the message they preach. That's the point of the second half of verse 8. We just kind of ran through it, but it says, you received without paying, give without pay. That's, that's his, his, his baseline. That's his point for why they need to depend on God entirely. And the point is, you received from God everything you could ever have dreamed of when he chose you and called you and, and gave you his grace. And there's nothing you could offer him. He, you didn't work your way up to God, and then he, he decided to pour his love out on you. You received without paying, so give without pay. Don't, don't charge people. Say, hey, how much are you going to pay before I heal this guy? You received without paying, give without pay. And then they just need to trust God to, to provide someone who's, who's willing to house them for a few nights. They don't save up. They don't make plans. They trust to be given freely in return. Uh, In in short, they are called to have a pilgrim lifestyle, a pilgrim lifestyle. They can't make a home. They can't save money because they're an ambassador. That's what an ambassador is, someone who's who's not at home, who doesn't belong. An ambassador can't get too comfortable because that's not where they're going to be staying. If If they get real cozy in one little town, they're going to fail at their mission that Jesus is sending them out on. They have to hold loosely to this world. And that's the principle that we, as Jesus' ambassadors today, too, must follow. Remember, these are specific commands to the apostles. It is is totally fine. There is nothing wrong with owning a home, with having a bag with money in it. It's not wrong to save up or anything like that. But it is wrong if we live like this world is where we belong. If we live like this world is where we belong, We are going to fail the mission God has called us to. To the extent that you or I become at home in this world, we will fail to be ambassadors. Because it's hard to preach the kingdom is near when you're laying on your back in a beach chair for six months out of the year. It doesn't look like the kingdom's near. It's hard to preach the kingdom is near when you're chasing a promotion at work like it's the only thing that could ever matter. It's hard to preach the kingdom is near when your finances reflect an investment in this world, more in the world to come. When I went on that, that student ambassador trip, right, I had, a, as I said, a name tag, a polo with a fancy logo on it that said I was an ambassador, but... Anyone looking at me eating my way through all the gelato in Western Europe saw nothing but another tourist. Church, I hope you know it is a blessing in many ways to be uncomfortable in this world because it will stir your heart to, to yearn for, to live for the world to come. Because we're not residents, we're not tourists, we are ambassadors of the kingdom. To come. Does your life reflect that? So Jesus is calling his disciples to a radical lifestyle in difficult places and with a profound message, but what then? What do they, once they've discharged their duty as an ambassador, what do they do? Look at verses 12 through 15. <coughs> as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Principle four. Jesus' ambassadors represent him by receiving rejection on his behalf. We represent him by receiving rejection on his behalf. Even though so much of of what we've already gone through in this passage feels foreign to us, this is probably the the most offensive or or difficult part of Jesus' teaching. What he commands feels kind of a a little spicy, a little mean even. But it's also very clear. To reject Jesus' apostles was to reject Jesus himself, and that means judgment. That means judgment. So when they got to a town, they're supposed to find a place to stay, and if the owner's cool with it, they're supposed to let their peace come upon it, and if he's not, they let their peace return to him, which, what's going on there? Is this a mystical Zen peace thing? What is going on? It's weird, right? The point is that their ministry, like Jesus' ministry, is a ministry of peace. It's not some weird Zen thing. Their ministry is a ministry of peace. Again, this is what the future kingdom of heaven looks like. Peace invading violence and chaos. The chaos and violence of this world being broken into by the ministry of eternal peace. That's what Jesus preached himself. In John 21, after his resurrection, he says it like four times, peace to you, peace to you, peace to you. He's he's exuding this eschatological end times shalom, this, this wholeness, this peace that eternity looks like. It's what we sing every Christmas, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled, right? This is the ministry of Jesus, peace on earth. That's what the angels are singing when he's born. And it's the ministry of his apostles as well. It is a ministry of peace, of bringing peace with God to people who are his enemies and with each other. But that peace has a limit. That peace can be withdrawn. That's what he means. He says, let your peace return to you. He's saying, remove your ministry, your witness from that house. The apostles are not meant to, to stay in a village forever until you know, every single household receives and believes the message. Eventually, they need to leave. Look at verse 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So it's a given. The message will be rejected by Some. And in response, they need to leave it and shake the dust off their feet, which is this kind of this image of, of severing the smallest possible ties you could have with them. Like if uh, it's, it's like saying to someone, "This relationship is over. I'm going to delete your number from my phone." Like it's a symbolic gesture. Like having the number doesn't actually mean there's a relationship or communication, but you delete the number, and there could never could be again. That's this image of, of shaking the dust from their feet. One of the worst things God can do this side of Judgment Day is to step back, remove his witness, and give you what you want. That's the whole point of Romans chapter 1. When God gives you up and lets you have things your way, when he lets your rejection of him stand, it's a promise that judgment will come. Verse 15 here is so clear, those who reject Christ's apostles will know the wrath of God on the day of judgment. Be like Sodom and Gomorrah, these Old Testament pictures of God literally raining fire from heaven. That's what they can expect. It's a sobering reality, but to reject the apostles is to reject Christ. In 1938, Hugh Wilson was appointed as the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Germany. And by all accounts, for some reason, he arrived optimistic and excited about his new job and the direction Germany was going under its leader, Adolf Hitler. And that changed for Wilson a few months after he'd been there on what's known in German as Kristallnacht, probably saying that wrong, uh, it means something like the night of broken glass. What happened was the Nazis and, and many, many German citizens Uh, went throughout the country with sledgehammers and axes, destroying Jewish businesses, hospitals, uh, homes, and synagogues. And so in response to this, this really grievous thing they'd done, President Roosevelt recalled Ambassador Wilson back to the States. We removed our ambassador as a sign of judgment. This is how diplomacy works even today. When ambassador's taken out, it means the missiles might be coming in next. To reject an ambassador is to reject the one who sent them. In the same way, to reject Christ's people, his church today is to reject Christ. I referenced 2 Corinthians 5 earlier. Let's look at that again. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's the message of peace we too bring to the world, a message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Listen to this. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Do you see that part of what it means to be an ambassador is to speak on behalf of the one who sent you. God makes his appeal to the world through us. So to reject the church, to reject the ambassadors, the embassy of heaven is to reject God's appeal to be reconciled to him. If you're here and you're thinking, you can do this Christianity thing on your own, you're sick of the church, the hypocrites, whatever, You need to hear this warning. You cannot reject the ambassador without rejecting the king. To reject Christ's church is to reject Christ. So commit to his people in order to commit to him. Now, I know there's churches out there. There's there's false churches out there who, who proclaim to follow Jesus but have thrown out the gospel. That's not who I'm talking about. But if it is indeed the case that true churches who hold fast the gospel, who preach the word, who stand by sound doctrine, messiness and all, there won't be perfection. But if it is the case that such churches are embassies of heaven, you cannot love Jesus and reject his church. You can't do it. You can't claim citizenship in heaven and hatred for its embassies. Another, there's a lot of talk today, right, deconstructing your faith, deconstruction is kind of the buzzword among the ex-evangelicals, people who, who decided, I'm done with evangelicalism, I'm going to kind of deconstruct and take things apart so I can reconstruct what I think Christianity is really supposed to be about. Whatever you do in regards to that, you cannot throw out the church. Jesus does not ever give you that option. Commit to Christ and his people. And for those of you who have, or maybe even today, we have two baptisms today by God's grace. Have two, two, two young people who are committing themselves to Christ as his ambassadors, declaring to the world they belong to him. If that is you, brothers and sisters, who are a part of this embassy here, recognize Jesus calls us to faithfulness, to do all the things that we've talked about here, to go where he commands, to preach and display the kingdom, but well, that faithfulness does not mean the response is in your hands. Sometimes you sow the seed, you move on, and you trust God. It's not up to you to manufacture a change. You will receive rejection on behalf of your king if you represent him as his ambassador, but not because you've messed it up or you didn't say the words quite right or something like that. They're rejecting the king before they're rejecting you. So at a certain point, you wash your hands and you trust God. Pray he'll give the seed growth, but know it's not in your hands. This is the ambassadorship we are called to, church, to go where our king sends us, to preach and to portray his kingdom here in McKinney, to hold loosely to this world, knowing we are citizens of the world to come and to sometimes be rejected, knowing it is our king who we represent, whether we're rejected or approved or whatever. It's a glorious and joyful task we've been given. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would so stir in our hearts to see our King in his glory. You would tear us from this world, that you would keep us from, from living like we belong here, keep us from complacency in the task you've given us. Oh God, you have called us as your ambassadors. It's a serious but, but wonderful duty we've been given, and I pray, God, we would be faithful. I pray we would see the role you've called us to, we would not fear, but we would be filled with joy knowing the one whom we represent. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.